Hello and welcome to Peach Potty, Georgia Politics Podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And today I am joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you? I am great. Very, very happy to be here. Um, so on this week's podcast, we're going to talk about some apparent efforts to resurrect a bill creating a voucher system for public school students to attend private schools. We'll also discuss the surprise vote from Johnny Isaacson in favor of Trump's national emergency declaration. And we'll wrap up with a lightning round, checking in on some of the biggest issues to move through the Gold Dome this session, plus the failure of the martyr referendum in Gwinnett County yesterday. Uh, But first, before we get started today, be sure if you didn't catch this already to scroll up in your feed and check out Luke and Megan's recap of the Young Democrats of Georgia convention last weekend. Um, That was a great episode that I was not involved in. uh, So I, for once, got to just listen to the podcast. Uh, So Luke, thank you and thank Megan for doing that. Uh, No problem. It was a blast. And you are now not president anymore. That's correct. I am the former president of the Young Democrats of Georgia. So, you know, I get I get to be in the illustrious president's club now. All right. So let's dive in with our first topic. Earlier in session, a cohort of Republican senators joined Democrats in defeating a bill to create a private school voucher program in the state. Supporters argued that the bill would give families needed choices and allow them to do what they wanted with their education dollars, while opponents decried the cost to public schools of lost students and lost revenue. But the defeat of the bill has not ended the discussion. The lieutenant governor is working on a version of the bill to be brought up again, and Charlie Harper's weekly column took aim at Republican opponents of the program. Plus, with some late-breaking news this afternoon, it looks like some language about this bill has made it into another bill, Um, so it is a zombie that has come back to life. Um, Let's start, Luke, with just this concept of education savings accounts. Um, Proponents of this program argue that the dollars at play here are not dollars that belong to the state, but that they are dollars, that they are tax dollars that belong to individuals, and that therefore individuals should be able to take the amount that the state would spend on each student's public schooling, which is averages about $5,500, to take that $5,500 in a voucher and do what they want with it, whether it be enroll in private school, pay for other sort of schooling supplies like textbooks and other things that might support a homeschooling environment. Um, or other approved educational environments. What do you think about that concept generally? I think we're just like missing the the bare principle that uh, the majority of people go to public schools. The public school system is the system that we should be focused on supporting and uh, working to improve. And the Republicans consistently are obsessed with trying to make private school happen when that's not the system that most people are looking towards. And so the just the amount where, where I start out on this bill or any of these private school voucher programs is like they go with such great lengths to like create these creative ways to say we're not taking money from public education. But all, all that anyone ever thinks when they see a bill like this is that they're taking money from public education. And so I think on that front, that's just what this is another example of. Yeah, I think the thing that stands out to me is we've had discussions about voucher programs and about other mechanisms for school choice in the legislature in recent years. 
And the one thing that I never see is proponents of this bill grapple with evidence, a lot of evidence that came out between like 2015 and 2017, showing that students who get vouchers like these and move from public schools to private schools, that their performance has been shown to decline, decline in math, decline in reading. This research has come out of four different states, Indiana, Louisiana, Ohio, and the District of Columbia. Um, And I just haven't seen a compelling rationale for how a program in Georgia would be different than the experience in these other states and why if we look to other states and see declining performance for students in these voucher programs, why this discussion is always wrapped up in creating new opportunities for students, because the evidence suggests that the opportunities are not there and that it is actually harming student performance in the long run. And this is yet another example, Kyle, of don't let your facts get in the way of my truth. Their truth is that private school is better Their truth is that lowering taxes will always create economic growth, and the facts are irrelevant. The goal is to make private school a bigger system and provide more benefits for people to go to private school. They don't really care if private school works or not. It's, you know, their their opportunity to, you know, say the government sucks and the private sector is better. Um, So the interesting thing about the proposal that was defeated in the Senate was that it laid out basically priorities um, for who would be eligible to be a part of this program. And the priorities were for low-income students, students being bullied, students with disabilities, and students with a parent in the military. But the thing that is sort of left open at the end there is there's a general qualification that allows any student who previously attended a Georgia public school in the last year to qualify. So while it prioritizes these groups that maybe there's a discussion there for why specific groups in these circumstances should have the option of a private school education, um, it doesn't completely limit it to those groups. And it initially allows a half of a percentage point of the total public school population to be eligible to participate in this program. Basically, it's a cap. And once you hit 0.5%, nobody will be allowed to participate anymore. But that cap grows year by year up to 5%. Um, The thing that just frustrates me about this discussion is it's, it's pitched as this limited program that's meant to be prioritized for a certain group of students. And it's, it's a very sympathetic group of students where this may be an appropriate solution for them, but there's no limit in the long run to raising the cap beyond 5%. Um, and there's nothing that I can tell in the text of the bill that failed in the Senate that me that while it prioritizes certain groups, it doesn't prohibit a larger group of students from eventually ending up in this program. So what is being discussed and framed right now is a really limited expansion of this program is something that once you put it on the book seems really likely to grow. I I think again, we're just missing the point here is like if these groups are having trouble in public school, like the solution is not to take them out of public school. The solution is to try to improve public school to fix these issues because I don't really know 
what difference it will make whether you know it's a private school or a public school if someone's being bullied or not or if someone it has a disability there's no argument they're presenting that this will somehow be a better environment for them they're just making the argument that it will not be public school and thus it must be a better environment for them but that logical you know assertion is not just true because they say it is yeah i mean the core concept for conservatives here is that competition between schools is going to drive school quality and that education is not different than any other like private market good but the particularly to the students that are uh, prioritized in this first version of the bill they're students who come from backgrounds where other types of services like banking and grocery stores are harder to come by in low-income communities that the market by itself has not delivered much more basic goods like banking and groceries than providing an education. And so this is why I just don't find this very compelling. Um, but the part of the reason that I think this bill was resurrected or that there is a conservative push to resurrect this bill at this point is uh, Charlie Harper's column last week that gets published on Georgia Poll and in the Courier Herald. Um, he made pretty much a blatantly partisan argument about this issue he said that Democrats were basically bought and paid for by the teacher lobby, that the media is biased against shifting funding from public to private schools, and that all of the media stories about this have focused on the fact that public schools would lose money, and that Republicans should, Republicans, particularly the Republicans who have been skeptical of the voucher program and have and opposed the bill when it was initially brought up in the Senate, that they should be interested in supporting this bill, not necessarily because it would improve student outcomes, because the evidence doesn't support that, but that it would help Republicans take back seats that they lost in the 2018 elections. What did you make of like this explicitly partisan argument that Charlie is making in his column to try to bring this bill back to life? I've just been sad to see how Charlie Harper has started to get more and more in the mindset of screw the libs. Because when I read this, like my my initial thought was, so what? When you said you wanted to talk about this, uh, because it's just like this feels like standard flaring, uh, you know, for Republicans that you know they it points out a group that usually aligns with Democrats in this case, teachers, and it provides an opportunity to take away or not give them what they want. And and Charlie's making this argument that teachers are somehow this like all powerful force in the you know state of Georgia and they get everything they want and they're pushing away resources from other things that they should have. Like, you know, Georgia is one of the states with the lowest paid teachers. That's why you have a Republican governor promising teachers a raise so that we don't get uh, the strikes and stuff that we've seen in other states. So, I mean, just like... Making making this argument that like this is a way to screw the libs and it will you know sweep us back into the state house and pick up all the seats that we lost is just I don't know it's just unhinged in my opinion. Yeah, I was really surprised at how explicitly he called out teachers and the teachers unions on this one. We as a state just last year in the final year of, of Governor Deal's administration fully funded QBE for the first time in almost two decades. Governor Deal consistently tried to, once we had emerged out of the Great Recession, tried to give teachers raises that were often not delivered on by local school districts because local school districts were still recovering from almost two decades of austerity so much 
that they needed that money to fulfill other sort of like daily obligations and other other things. And now Governor Kemp comes on the scene for the first time in a really long time, a really significant raise is put on the table for teachers. And Charlie like treats them like they're these like money grubbing bureaucrats who are driving around Rolls Royces and living the high life. When for a lot of these teachers, particularly early career teachers, the teachers that are the lowest paid, I mean, I know teachers who have to work a second job to make ends meet. Um, And not only here in Georgia, but in other states around the country, we've seen strikes by teachers when they've had their pay threatened, their pensions threatened. I mean, it, it, it just does not reflect reality to think that our teachers are like spoiled welfare queens living high off the government dollar here. Um, and so I, it, it would be a dereliction of duty for people who oppose this bill to not look at Charlie's description of teachers and say, that is what they think about you. That is how they think you play in this public policy discussion about education. And they don't respect the work that you do in the classroom. They don't respect your opinion on whether or not this money needs to stay in public schools. They want it taken out of the system. So it just is shocking how how blatant that is and how um, some people in this debate don't appear to have learned Roy Barnes' lesson from uh, 2000. And on top of that, I mean, it's it's not like if you make a school a private school, they will demand less money and they will want less money. I mean, if the if his complaint is that teachers would like to be paid a living wage that is acceptable in this time and era, then like surprise, private school also has teachers and they also would like to get paid something. So I, you know, it's just I I, I don't even know where to uh, begin with uh, Charlie a lot of times these days. The one thing just to close the discussion of this topic out is I think it's important here to talk about the role that race and school segregation plays in this issue. Um, the The voucher movement in its earliest incarnations was actually a way for white parents to keep their kids out of schools that were being integrated by the civil rights movement and courts in the South. Um, they were originally called... Um, according to Nicole Hannah-Jones, a, 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 a writer who writes a lot about school segregation and, and the role that race plays in schools, um, they were originally called segregation academies, and they, they popped up across the South after the Supreme Court struck down school segregation in 1954. She's got a lot of good writing on this. Um, it, that's not to say that everybody who supports a voucher is a racist, Um, But I think it is important here to acknowledge the role that race plays in this issue and the way that some parents may see this as an opportunity to remove their kids from schools that have other students in it that they don't want their kids hanging around. Um, And we have backtracked significantly as a nation on school integration. And it it. You know, and the evidence shows that it harms kids, particularly children of color from lower income backgrounds who go to schools that have less resources. And so I, I think it's important here to to surface that issue and not let that pass, uh, be, given the history of the state that we're talking about here. Yeah, I, I think that, too, is revealing in its own way, back to what I was saying before, in the sense that 
I think while it's it's true that everyone that supports private schools are not racist, it's also you know not um, a coincidence in my mind that th- these folks are so concerned about how to make private school better and how to placate people who want to go to private school, and they spend very little thought on how to improve. Uh, public school, which is you know where the vast majority of people in our state and across the country go to, uh, you know, be educated. Um, so I think we'll leave that there and move on to our second topic. But this is a bill that has been inserted into another bill in the House. That bill passed out of committee today. I haven't actually seen the text of the bill that's being debated now. So you should consider the analysis that we've been talking about a reference to the Senate bill that failed earlier this session. And we'll have to find out if there were any significant changes to the version that's showing up in the House. Uh, But this looks like an issue that is not completely done yet. Um, So for our next topic, last week, the U.S. Senate voted to override President Trump's national emergency declaration. But in a bit of a surprise, Senator Johnny Isaacson joined Purdue in refusing to condemn the president's declaration. Isaacson's indecisiveness on this vote was apparent publicly, as he told the AJC and other media outlets that he was torn over the constitutional issues at play. But after the vote, Isaacson said that the only vote he could have taken was a vote on border security, and Trump had pressured Republican senators prior to the vote along this line of argument, tweeting that they were making it too complicated by focusing on constitutional issues over a straight question of whether or not the border is secure. On Friday, Trump vetoed that proposal. This was the first veto of his term, and Congress does not appear to have the votes to override that veto. Um, So at least for now, until this issue is heard in the courts, the emergency declaration from President Trump will stand. Luke, what did you think of Senator Isaacson uh, ultimately siding with President Trump on this issue? I, I think it's a sign that more and more Republican senators are not willing to put their money where their mouth is. You know, Isaacson's reasoning for why he voted with Trump is that Trump was making an argument for border security and Democrats were just like playing politics with their opposition to this. And it's like, no, it like it doesn't matter what the other side is doing. The, you know, the means of your opponent does not justify the ends of your ally in the sense that, like, sure, Trump is making an argument that you agree with, that you think border security is important. That does not make his action constitutional. And Isaacson is supposed to be one of the adults in the room. And, I mean, he's just proving more and more that he's not. Yeah, I found this really frustrating. Today, uh, Senator Isaacson uh, is in Atlanta on, because the because Congress is on recess, and he spoke at length about how frustrated he was with President Trump over Trump continuing to bring up John McCain and disparage his name. And Isaacson gets a lot of credit for doing this very often, for saying the right thing, whether it's sticking up for his now past friend John McCain or saying the right things earlier on in this discussion over this emergency, being concerned with whether or not Democrats would abuse this power and whether or not inherent in his criticism of whether or not Democrats would do it was whether or not this was a proper role for the president to play, given Article 1 and the fact that Congress appropriates the money. Um, But his actions do not line up with those statements very often. And I think he kind of gets off 
because he says the right things and he's been around a long time and people like him. Um, But after the vote, the Pentagon put out a list that identified $260 million in construction projects on Georgia military bases that could be subject to Trump's border emergency money grab here. And it was not the the details of this came out after the vote, but it was not a secret that Georgia, a state that has a significant military presence, was going to be on the chopping block for potential money to leave military projects in the state to be reappropriated to the border wall by the president unilaterally. Um, And so it just blows my mind that when you look at the substance of this, that both Isaacson and Purdue, but I think we look to Isaacson more in this on this issue, have a responsibility to represent the state and to defend the interests of the state. And that not only do we have the constitutional issues at play, but we have money that is likely to leave Georgia military base construction projects to build the wall. And none of that swayed his vote. None of that swayed the actual action that he took, despite all that he said. And I think that to me is like where we're kind of missing the point on how we're judging Isaacson's tenure in DC during the Trump era. Uh, I agree. And I think it's, you know, this is one of the principal cancers of politics of the past couple of decades is that like Johnny Isaacson is no longer the Senator from Georgia. David Perdue is not the Senator from Georgia. He is Trump's Senator and it's, he is there to represent the interest of Trump and Trump's voters. And, the you know politics has been nationalized to such an extent over the years like this is not a new thing it's not even a donald trump thing but it is definitely uh a consequence of putting everything you know on the line for uh, a single politician or a political party and i mean that's what we've seen in how david Perdue's acted for a long time his whole time up there and johnny asgerson more and more is doing the same thing So to switch gears and talk about Purdue a little bit, but let's talk about Purdue in the context of a couple of other swing state or swingish state senators, Cory Gardner from Colorado and Tom Tillis from North Carolina. What do you make of some of these vulnerable Republicans siding with the president? Tillis was the most obvious one to me for the fact that he flipped his view. He had written an op-ed saying that he was going to vote against the president on this issue. And then apparently there was some discussion about a primary challenge from Mark Meadows from the House Freedom Caucus and some pressure from the White House. And he ultimately flipped his vote and sided with the president. But all three of these senators, Gardner, Tillis, and Purdue, are potentially vulnerable in 2020. What do you make of their decision to stand by the president, even though this is an issue that does not garner widespread support among the public? Gardner. Anyway, uh, so like, let's just put David Perdue over to the side because there's no universe in which David Perdue would not have voted for this. This is like, honestly, if David Perdue had become president, I feel like this is something he would have done because immigration was one of his big topics. So yeah, there's like no way David Perdue would not have been 100% fine with this. Um, so Tillis and Gardner, they're just cowards. I mean, like, let's just put it, like, let's just be honest about it. Like, they have firm beliefs about what was right and what was constitutional, and they decided to do the more convenient thing, uh, which is deal with, you know, the general election later and focus on their primaries. Because, I mean, I think the calculation 
that pretty much every politician is making, and this is this is you know Democrats and Republicans that are like you you can't go against the base, right? Like you're not going to win either way if the base hates you. And since the war, you know the the border wall is the you know Trump's big thing, and it's the thing that apparently all of his supporters care the most about, which I also think is not true, but I mean that is what the conventional wisdom is. I think Tillis and Gardner made the you know, calculation that if they lose the Trump base, they lose anyway, so they might as well go ahead and support this. Uh, Tillis, obviously, was the one who was the most cowardly of the two because, like, why are you in politics? Why are you being a senator if you can't even do the things you, like, think are right or wrong? In the sense that, like, he made a very clear statement that he thought, Trump's actions were wrong and that you should vote against them. And just because Mark Meadows threatens you, you're going to be like, I now change my mind. Uh, no, it's so transparent and so just spineless. You know, if you are going to be a senator, like make decisions you think are right, be willing to stand by them and fight for them and beat Mark Meadows in the primary. Like it's not that hard. Is there anything meaningful to you that some of the more serious senate republicans sided with the president on this issue i mean isaacson's the one at the top of this list for me um and you had some high profile defections like roy blunt and lamar alexander some of the other uh older senators that have been there for a while mitt romney also defected but i'm sure that that you know despite what romney says is a relatively toxic relationship between him and him and the president but as did little marco don't forget little marco but it's not as if all of the more serious senators wound up opposing this declaration and all of the senators that you'd put in the Purdue bucket were the only ones to back him. This really was a significant split in the, in the, um, the Republican caucus in the Senate. Is there anything that's meaningful about that to you? So like you were saying, this wasn't like the old guard senators, the like people you would think would vote against it with Johnny Isaacson. So like you have Rand Paul and Mike Lee, they make sense. They're, you know, they talk about the Constitution a lot and pretend that they think that's the most important thing. Uh, And really, you know, it's only when it's convenient and when it's uh, more convenient to forget the Constitution, then they vote that way. Then you have Susan Collins, which, you know, like if anyone was going to vote against it, Susan Collins would be the first one on your list. So like that makes sense. Then you have Lamar Alexander and Roy Blunt. Lamar Alexander's not running again, so of course he you know, feels uh, free to vote against it. Then Roy Blunt just won re-election, and so you know, he kind of feels like more in the Isaacson camp. And you know, then you have Rob Portman and Marco Rubio and Pat Toomey. And I'm like, you know, it's just like there's no there's no like coalition of the willing here that like I feel like is usual, you know, or like fits into one one category. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know what to think of this. Uh, really, I think it means almost nothing because Trump vetoed this and the Senate definitely does not have the votes to overcome, uh, his veto. And yeah, so I, I I don't even know. I I feel like this is just so typical of the Trump era. I, I don't find much interesting in it. Like it's surprising that Isaacson did, you know, did not join, the yes votes for the resolution since it was going to pass like had you told me isaac saying was the deciding vote and like that kept it from passing like i would believe that but 
you know, it's a little surprising Isaacson didn't join all these other senators. He seems like he will have plenty of cover. I think it's just, you know, the the politics, party politics is, is what rules now. So I don't know. Yeah, I think the thing that stands out to me is several of these senators that voted with Trump on this issue, they're not ones that are typically tied to Trump. I'm thinking like people like Ben Sass or Richard Shelby, Johnny Isaacson, some of the older guys, Ben Sass, a younger guy who's a um, also closer to the like Rand Paul, Mike Lee camp of a constitutionalist and somebody who I think is considered maybe rightly or wrongly to be a little more serious. And so if a Democratic president tries to exploit this issue, some of these senators who are not tied to Trump and who are probably going to outlast him in the Senate, they're going to be on the record saying that this is fine, that that a wide open definition of a national emergency, even when the effects, even when the facts on the ground don't support the claim of an emergency, that that's just a wide open power for the president. And they will inevitably get on Fox News when a Democratic president does this and talk about how the Democratic president is pissing on the Constitution. But they will be on the record with a real vote that they did not care when it was Trump. And it will be painfully obvious that it is fine if it's a Republican president blowing through the Constitution, but it's not fine for a Democratic president to do it. And so I think this will be one of those issues that is easier for Democrats to exploit rightly or wrongly, given that there wasn't this split. Like it, it would have been a harder argument to make if the only people who sided with Trump were some of the Looney Tunes that are with him on anything and everything. So that's what I think the lasting impact of this is whether or not there's a situation with a similar fact pattern that Democrats can take advantage of um, remains to be seen. But if that, day ultimately comes and there's a lot of Democrats who want it to come given how blatant a lot of them view uh, Trump's move here to be um, it's going to be a hard thing for Republicans to counter and to kind of close this topic out I think yeah again this is a moment where I need to mention that in everyone's Wikipedia article you know article it just needs to have their their title their name and then a supporter of Donald Trump because that is really all you need to know is like to tell how most of these people are going to vote 95% of the time, 99% of the time is if they are a Republican and they support Donald Trump, they will vote with him no matter what the topic is. It does not matter. All right. So let's close out the pod today with a little bit of a lightning round on some of the things we've discussed over the last few weeks. Some of the issues moving through the legislature and the, in the Gwinnett Marta referendum to update y'all on where they are. Let's start with uh, the Gwinnett, Marta vote. So yesterday voting concluded in Gwinnett County, where residents considered whether or not to ratify a contract negotiated between the county and Marta to bring expanded transit to Gwinnett. The referendum failed by several points, which I think a lot of people thought was pretty surprising. Um, Jim Galloway framed this prior to the vote as the vote being not a yes or no on transit for Gwinnett, but a now or later vote for transit. What do you think of that framing? And do you think that a no vote yesterday by Gwinnett County significantly stops transit expansion in our region? Well, first, I would say this is a dereliction of duty on the political leaders of Gwinnett and Georgia at large, because investments like this should not be referendums, like just period, like people should have to, you know, politicians 
Should you run? Yeah, it's exactly what I was just saying on the last topic. You run for office. You're there to do things. You're there to make decisions for people because you have more information than they do. And you know more than they do about these issues because that's what you spend your day job doing in the same way that my mom knows way more about hairdressing than David Perdue or Johnny Isaac Singer and these folks in Gwinnett. They know more about the transportation needs in Gwinnett than most people because that's their job. So this shouldn't be a referendum in the first place. So the answer should be, if you think that this is important enough to put on a referendum, you should probably just be doing it. So... That's the first thing. The second thing is, yeah, I would say the framing is now or later. I think the only reason that this failed is because it's in March in a non-election year and the turnout was abysmal. If you had done a you know forced poll of every single human being in Gwinnett or anybody who travels in Gwinnett, everyone, you know, I, you know, I, I, I think it's a pretty safe bet that like having Mara in Gwinnett would have one that you know poll that's impossible to do but when the turnout is like less than 20 percent like what you expect it's going to be the diehard people that aren't just no's but hell knows that show up so this is just you know we talked about it earlier but this should have been if it had to be on a ballot it should have been in november not in march of a non-election year yeah the thing i wanted to throw up my phone today when i read this the gwinnett Commission Chair Charlotte Nash said in the wake of the referendum defeat that the task for Gwinnett right now was to choose the right date for the next referendum. Charlotte Nash chose the date and she chose the wrong date and she did it intentionally to try to save the seats of her uh, Republican friends on the commission and some of them lost. It didn't this matter. is Gwinnett's bre- Brexit, okay? <laughs> like, th- this is just, it's stupidity on a level that I cannot imagine. Just, like, stop putting these things on referendums and just do them. And if you've done the wrong thing, then your voters will throw you out, and the next people they bring in will reverse it. Well, I think if this is like Brexit, then the Gwinnett uh, Commission should be forced to have question time uh, for Charlotte Nash like they do in Parliament uh, overseas. All right, so the next issue that we've talked a lot about this session is the heartbeat ban on abortion. Um, So on Monday, Renee Unterman's Science and Technology Committee approved the heartbeat bill that bans abortion at six weeks, which effectively bans it outright in the state. The bill passed out of the panel on both party and gender lines, with three Republican men casting the votes to move it forward. The bill is headed for the Senate floor, and the reporting that I saw today indicates that it could be on the floor for debate as soon as Friday. The Senate's in both Thursday and Friday of this week. Stephen Fowler over at GPB reported that the Georgia heartbeat ban was unique and more likely than other abortion bans to be the bill that reaches the Supreme Court to challenge the ruling in Roe. Do you think that's true? And do you think that if that comes to pass, that this is a legacy Georgia Republicans should want? So... Every time we've brought up this bill on the show or in our chat, what have I always said, Kyle? I've said the same thing. This bill was designed for a lawsuit, the Cogus Cogus. So I'm not surprised he's saying that because that's why I fought the entire time. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how I could have made this bill better if I wanted to get a Supreme Court challenge on this issue. Uh, there's probably something I could have done, but I, I don't know uh, <laughs> what. And on... This is definitely a legacy that they want because they are very quickly rushing towards it. It's something that, I mean, 
anti-abortion advocates have not really like been unclear about what they want. They want Roe versus Wade overturned now. They want it overturned yesterday. They wish it had never happened. So as far as like, should they want it? That's not for me to decide, uh, but this is what they want. And you know, sort of the polar opposite of what we've been talking about with this Gwinnett thing and the emergency declaration thing. This is this is politics being operated the way you would want it to, where people say they're for something or they're against something, and they do everything they possibly can to do that, and they're consistent about it. Now, obviously, I incredibly disagree with them, but at least they will be able to be held accountable for doing what they're doing. Yeah, I think some of the reason that this may be considered a more effective bill than other heartbeat heartbeat bans that are being passed in other states is that it dives more into the questions of personhood and tries to establish some other somewhat related things in state law related to personhood for fetuses that start at six weeks, apparently. These are the issues that we've talked about before where you can claim your fetus on your tax return, um, that they will be counted in population counts at the state level, though not at the federal level. I don't know that I fully understand the constitutional argument here, but if I'm inferring in my in in putting on my very much not a lawyer hat, um, I could maybe see an outcome where trying to push a decision towards making a ruling on a personhood standard maybe sidesteps having to outright undo the undue burden standard in row. Um, and it's I not don't in know. Row, it's in Casey. In Casey. Oh, okay. I, I mean, basically, like, let me. They're trying to make people debate whether fetuses are people or not because they're not winging the we are men and would like women to not have abortions argument. And they're not winging the more nuanced we think. Uh, these incredibly high barriers should be placed over the the safest medical procedure in America. They're not winging those arguments. They're not winging the argument that abortion should be illegal because abortion should be illegal. So they have to start a new argument, and the new argument they're trying to start is the personhood one. So I mean that's that's you know that's all I can think about it. And they're I guess they're hoping it, that. Um, but I, the goal is to get rid of Casey and get rid of Roe. Like, yeah. if you go down the personhood route, there's no way that that framework remains because it, it's it's contemplating a universe where a collection of cell, cells with a heartbeat is a collection of cells with a heartbeat and not a person. Yeah. Um. So so we'll keep an eye on that as that gets to its final stages. But um, it it does seem like there is very little standing in the way of that bill being finalized, uh, given all of the political capital that has been spent to get it to this point. Our next subject, the airport takeover bill. So there's a new legislative dynamic for the effort for the state to take over the Atlanta airport. Um, late today, James Salzer at the AJC tweeted out that Georgia Senate leadership added a, uh, a tax increase to Delta and other airlines to pay for rural airport improvements, and that this was going to be tied to the effort for the state to take over the Atlanta airport. Um, but this has some also some added new complexity from the federal level in that a former Delta executive 
was recently nominated by Trump to head the FAA. And the issue here is that the FAA, under its rules based on a prior airport fight in Charlotte, said that the FAA was not going to recognize a state takeover of an airport if the city that owned the airport did not consent to the takeover. And, you know, when I read that, I thought, well, Trump administration, Republican government asking to take over a asset currently owned by a Democratic local government, maybe that would change. But given the fact that the new nominee to lead the FAA, who would presumably oversee the FAA's acceptance of this takeover, is a former Delta executive. Um, So I can't imagine that he would take too kindly to a bill that reverses what was going to be a tax break for Delta, a a permanent uh, extension of a jet fuel tax break that is now a tax increase on Delta. And that is a state takeover of the airport that Delta has opposed. Um, Why do you think the the tides have turned so much against Delta in this legislative session. This was a a surprising late development today. Because Delta is not a team player on the Republican social agenda. So this is an opportunity for the social conservatives to punish Delta for not being with them on RIFRA and on abortion and on these other issues. I think it's honestly just that simple. Just reacting to to seeing Salzer's tweet late today, I don't really understand the path forward for the bill then because Speaker Ralston has been somewhat skeptical of the airport takeover idea and presumably the tax increase is not something that Delta is going to like and presumably Delta, probably Delta's CEO is going to call up Speaker Ralston and say, what the hell is going on over there? Um, and ask him to kill the bill. So I don't really understand how, you know, originally the idea would have been to pair a sweetener for Delta, the tax break with the takeover and see if they could accept that. This takes it in the other direction. So I don't really understand what the logic here is. I I assume we're going to get more information about this going forward, but it just doesn't seem to make any sense to me right now. One final Update before we go, uh, the voting machine bill, this bill, I think we talked about this on last week's show, it has passed both chambers, it is on Governor Kemp's desk for a signature, Um, but the Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has already put out a request for proposals to vendors who would potentially supply the state with the voting machines uh, after this RFP process is complete. This, the fact that Raffensperger put out the RFP before the governor had signed the voting machine bill, raised some eyebrows for people. But do you think that that was all that meaningful? I I haven't seen anything that would suggest Kemp is going to veto this bill. And so I don't really, I didn't find this as alarming as other people did. I mean, we already know who's going to get the contract. We're just, we're just going through the motions at this point. Yeah. I think that, you know, it, this seemed like low-hanging fruit to bash Raffensperger with, but the RFP process, whether or not it looks like the proposal is designed for only one vendor to qualify to to turn out to be the quote-unquote best applicant for this project, um, and whether or not there is a serious look at other applicants is the standard that I think we're looking at here, and and you certainly can't judge that. Uh, the day that the RFP is released, but I think that'll become clearer once, you know, once the details of this are digested a little bit, 
Um, so I, I, I don't know. I didn't get as up in arms as, as other people did about that. We, we, we've known where this was going from the moment this bill was introduced. So a, anyone who uh, says otherwise is kicking themselves. So we're going to wrap it up there for the week. Uh, we are coming up on the end of session. Signy die is April the 2nd. Um, so we've only got a couple more weeks left. So we'll be here to keep you up to date on the latest as these bills move into their final stages. And uh, I'm looking forward to tallying up the total number of lawsuits that the state has racked up this legislative session because I think they're going to get sued over the heartbeat bill. I think they may get sued over their health care bill. I think there's an argument to sue the state over the uh, election machines bill. And there are still several days left for them to uh, stir up some other lawsuits if they feel like that's a productive use of their time. Um, so It's a good time to be a lawyer in Georgia or a potential one. Yes. Uh, with that, we are going to leave it there. Uh, so we will talk to you all next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.